Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Mike Osborne, and I am not a vegetarian. Okay, okay, now that's out there. And I bring it up because on today's show, we're going to talk about the future of meat consumption with Paul Shapiro. Paul is the Vice President of Policy for the Humane Society. He's also a vegan and a strong advocate against animal cruelty. Paul has a book on the clean meat movement that will be published later this year. And in this interview, I'm also joined by producer Benji Jones, who is also a vegetarian. So yeah, two against one here. Now, personally, it's my experience that vegetarians and vegans often feel very strongly about their choice to not eat meat. And if you're environmentally inclined, the arguments for abstaining from meat are a little hard to ignore. The veggies and vegans make a strong case. On the other hand, most people do eat meat, and it's important not to shut us meat eaters out of the conversation. So I began this interview by trying to put all of this up front to Paul. Let's jump right in. Paul, one of the things that Benji and I discussed beforehand is that it might be helpful to have me participate in this interview because I'm a meat eater, I'm conflicted about that, And I think that there's probably a lot of people in our audience who fall into that category, who eat meat, who kind of know all the problems with it. But there is a a part that sort of knows we're uh, engaged in something that's problematic, right? And and, and that we're a little bit gun-shy of being told by those damn vegetarians, you know, what evil bad people we are. So how do you respond to that sentiment? How do you open a conversation with, with people who do eat meat and knowing that there is a kind of um, uh, resistance, a kind of repellent force around the conversation? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I used to eat meat for many years. That's how I was raised, and that's how most people in the world still eat, including many family members and other people who I love. I recognize that for a lot of people, these are ingrained habits that have decades of uh, inertia behind them, 
And it's not as easy to break that overnight. And we shouldn't expect people to be able to break something that they've been doing for that long in such a short amount of time. And maybe some people never will. I don't know. But we can do better. Right now, the animal agriculture industry is a leading contributor to climate change. It is the leading cause of animal cruelty. And each one of us can make a difference when we sit down to eat. It doesn't mean that we have to do all or nothing. It doesn't mean that we need to go whole hog, or I guess in this case, no hog. Uh, it means though that we should try to do better. For me, being a vegetarian or being a vegan, it's more of an aspirational statement than it is some type of ideological purity. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. It's a very eloquent answer. And I think that, you know, we live in a, 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 a globalized world, a complex economy. There, we face all kinds of consumer decisions every day. And certainly when it comes to this particular topic, there is a great harm being done behind the scenes that is hidden from us. I guess what I'm, I'm sort of... Uh, getting at is that I don't want to feel judged by my vegetarian friends. And I think a lot of meat eating people do. I think a lot, you know, somebody says they're vegan and, and somehow that's, that's threatening to those of us who want to do better and are not. So I, I think that there is a kind of, you know, dialogue problem, even among people who are like-minded, even when their behavior doesn't necessarily demonstrate the same like-mindedness. Does that make sense? Yeah, Michael, I don't think it's all on on your fault on that. I mean, oh, good. So that's all it, I needed. You know, that's all I needed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, part of the problem is, uh, just to be totally frank, that uh, some vegans have not been good ambassadors, right? So um, you have some who have more of, I, I would suggest, a, uh, a judgmental view than a welcoming view. My view is that we should have a, a social movement, not a social club. And to have a social movement, you have to have a big tent. And so what I would say to you is, yeah, you're right. I, I am a vegan. I hope that that's not threatening. If anything, it should be non-threatening since I've committed my life to try to be as non-violent as possible. Right. Yes, exactly. I'm threatened by um, the man who doesn't want to hurt animals, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Um, but what I would suggest is that, you know, for me and for a lot of uh, other people who are, are like-minded, like, we want to welcome people. Like, I want to congratulate people if they do something good rather than just sit around and complaining uh, if somebody does something that I don't like. Eleanor Roosevelt had a good line on this. She said that it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent, Mike, that you want to do something like a Meatless Monday, my hat is off to you, man. I'm wondering, am I a threatening vegetarian? I feel like I may be. <laughs> There's a reason I have you on that side so, of the studio. Yeah. In the booth. Yeah. I, I need to think about this one. Paul, you talked a little bit about how you're still working towards an aspiration. And I'm wondering, what are you aspiring to? And like, do you draw a very specific line of what is okay and what is not okay when it comes to what you eat? Uh, great questions, Benji. So, no, I, I don't have um, some line at which I would say, ah, this is perfection, uh, which I think is frankly unobtainable. So uh, what I try to think about is how can I make the world a better place? What can I do that will reduce the amount of suffering on the, on the planet and increase the amount of happiness on the planet? And food choices are a big part of that. I mean, eating is a moral act. What foods we buy has a huge impact on others, especially those who often can't defend themselves. And so 
Uh, I like to think about my food choices in a way that would enable me to cause as little suffering as possible while still recognizing that nobody is so-called cruelty-free. That's just a pipe dream. We're always going to be committing some harm, and there's probably some foods that I'm consuming which do uh, far or less um, are far more harm than other things that I do in my life. So um, there's no one line that I am trying to get to as much as I just strive for continuous improvement. And in, in terms of uh, your second question about, you know, are there certain lines at the basement level? Yeah, sure. So generally speaking, I try to avoid animal products. That doesn't mean I'm sitting around concerned about micro ingredients or anything like that. But just generally speaking, yeah, I, I try to avoid meat, eggs, and dairy because those products typically come from animals who were tormented in ways that would be really objectionable to almost any reasonable person who would think about it objectively. What about bugs? <laughs> what about bug-based protein? I'm so fascinated by this topic. <laughs> yeah, I've seen cricket flour. I've yeah, seen, you know, yeah, yeah, it's out there now. Yeah, it's a real thing. I mean, and so that there are some vegans who would never eat it. There are others like James McWilliams, who's an author and writer on these topics, who is eating it. But I don't know. It's not something that I would eat just out of moral caution, because I would think I would think ah, I don't have to. But I I don't. I admittedly don't feel the same. Like you know, let's say somebody cuts a chicken's throat I, I don't feel the same as somebody uh, swatting a mosquito for sure right right, right right well I mean I guess I'm just sitting here thinking about you know th the framing we use to talk about different reasons that people choose to choose to make decisions about what they eat and don't eat um, and you know sometimes I think we sort of separate the environmental impulse to eat or not eat meat from animal welfare and I'm wondering actually are those two things really so different. I mean, do you, in your mind, see uh, the the choice to consume, you know, or not consume animals as part of your diet as being driven by, you know, the same desire to want to not have climate change and not want to have deforestation? I mean, is is that all sort of stemming from the same, you know, logical, cognitive, and emotional root? Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it goes to the concern that I was raising earlier, which is about how to make the world a better place, right? So think about at the end of your life, what's going to be said about you at your funeral. Probably the only thing that you really care about is for people to say that the world was a better place because you had lived. And so certainly our food choices play into that. Yes, as far as animal cruelty is concerned, but also for the environment. I mean, according to the United Nations, animal agriculture contributes about as much greenhouse gas emissions as all of the transportation sector combined. There's a mind blower. That's mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cars, airplanes, boats, trucks, everything. And so we think about climate change and we think about doing things like people, you know, they're told to recycle or take shorter showers or uh, switch to a hybrid car or bicycle more, whatever. Uh, but rarely do we hear eat less meat and eat more plants, despite the fact that they, that may be the single most important thing an individual consumer can actually do to impact climate change. And we need to think uh, beyond, you know, changing to more efficient light bulbs. That's good. I'm all for it. I, I'm, I think it's a great idea. But we got to think about what's on our plate, too. This has been really great background information, and it's really nice to hear a little bit more about where you're coming from. Now I want to kind of segue into veggie meats. From my understanding, within the Humane Society, your efforts focus both on trying to promote the welfare of animals that are in confinement, and then also just generally trying to reduce meat consumption across the board. And under that reduction of meat consumption, I know that you guys are backing 
this new plant-based meat industry. So I was wondering if you could start by just explaining plant-based meats. Yeah, you're first of all, you're hitting the nail on the head. Uh, we are supportive. In fact, we're financial investors in some of these companies as well. But what we're talking about is really two things. The first is using plants to create products that look and taste like meat. So you can use plants to create veggie burgers or veggie chicken or soy milk um, or, uh, you know, plant-based eggs and so on. There are a lot of ways that we can use plants to replace animal products without consumers really ever noticing the difference for the most part. At the same time, there is an emerging field, not yet commercialized, but will be in the near future, of what we call clean meat and clean animal products. These, unlike plant-based meats, are real animal products. They just are produced without slaughtering animals. So right now, we are already taking, for example, a tiny cell, like a little, um, a little cluster of cells via biopsy from an animal shoulder, let's say. And then we can produce millions of pounds of meat millions of pounds of real meat anatomically identical to conventional meat except safer because you have fewer food safety risks because you don't have the manure and antibiotics and other problems that you have uh, in the animal agricultural sector you know some of this sounds like like science fiction you know growing uh taking a, a bit of shoulder and growing it in a lab uh and and as you said it's not commercialized yet um other than the technological barriers to to commercialization what other issues sort of pop out um, that that might inhibit, you know, widespread adoption of uh, or widespread consumption of clean meats? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a it's fraught with potential barriers. So the what you just mentioned is, of course, the technological barriers are, are still quite high. Uh, not to actually doing it. We've proven that we can do it time and time again. We've made turkey nuggets. We've made hamburgers. We've made meatballs. But those products are very expensive. And the hope is that just like, you know, the first laptops and first iPhones are very expensive, and then eventually they come down to a price point where most everyone can have them, that that will happen here. We don't yet know if that will happen, but we certainly hope it will. Economies of scale kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, and new technologies that will enable it to become more efficient. So, yeah, there's a whole array of questions that are going to have to be answered, but this could be among the most disruptive technologies for our food system that there's ever been. Will there be a company in the meat industry that decides to get in on this? Will there be a Tyson Foods or a, a Cargill maybe that wants to get in on the, the clean meat movement? We don't know yet, but that could address a lot of these problems that we're talking about right now, but we'll have to wait and see. So just to clarify, we have two types of veggie meats. We have plant-based meat, which is really using just plant products, and then we have clean meat, which is actually synthesized in a lab essentially using real animal cells um and it seems like both of these industries are really starting to take off now i mean why is there so much buzz around these new plant-based fake meats well these billionaire investors are putting a lot of money into these companies because they see that in a world with a growing population by 2050 we might have between 9 to 10 billion humans walking around the planet where are we going to get the land to feed these coming billions? And the answer is we're going to have to get a lot more efficient. And if these people want to be eating meat, there's no way that they're going to be able to eat meat in the way that we're producing meat now because it is just so inefficient. We are not going to be able to farm you know, other planets. We have really only one planet to choose from right now. 
And because of that, we have to find ways to produce meat that will still satiate our desire for it while at the same time being vastly more efficient. And the clean meat movement is you look at the life cycle analyses on these products, I mean, you're talking about 99% less land use. You're talking about almost maybe half of the energy use for them, uh, 80% fewer greenhouse gas emissions and so on. This is a real solution to a very real problem that we're already starting to face and that will only intensify in future decades. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, from what you're describing, it sounds like it's really a practical, practical solution to address a very real need. Um, That's right. Yeah. Necessity is the mother of all invention. And smart investors are now putting their money in this because they see what was coming down the road. It's interesting that you guys are using the word need here, though, right? You two vegetarians using the word need because we don't need need it, right? right? But it does seem to me that it is actually a little bit less about changing consumer behavior uh, and, and and more about responding to uh, the inability to, to get people to change their behavior on a mass scale. I mean, not that many people are vegetarians, right? I mean, isn't this all kind of one conversation? You're so right, Mike. You're so right. So, I mean, look, I wish that more people would base their food choices on ethics or the environment or even our health. Some people do, but that's not really high at the list for most people. In fact, survey after survey after survey shows that the three primary criteria that people use to make their food choices are price, taste, and convenience. Price, taste, and convenience reign supreme when it comes to food choices. Animal welfare, the environment, health are nowhere near the top of the list. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, we are seeking to improve conditions for animals who are raised for food while at the same time reducing the number of them who are being raised for food. And one of the most efficient ways that we can reduce the number of them who are being used for food is not necessarily to make the ethical case for eating less meat, though it's an, it's an ironclad case to be made, but rather it's to make it more easy, more convenient, and just as tasty to consume these alternative products than it is to just keep buying conventional factory farm products. So I'll give you a quick example. A decade ago, plant-based milks were less than 1% of the total uh, fluid milk market in our country. Today, they're at 10%. 10% of all the fluid milks in our country is soy milk or rice milk or coconut milk or almond milk. And that's a huge, huge shift. And it didn't come about because lots of people were sitting around thinking, I feel bad for dairy cows and want to give them a break. I wish that were so. That would be wonderful. But it came about because plant-based milks got very good. They got cost competitive. They got placed directly in the milk aisle. So you didn't have to go to some special aisle in the supermarket. They're just right next to the milk. So nobody has to change their buying patterns. And then also concerns about health as well. So that's an example of how milk consumption was reduced in a good way while uh, basically just making it easier and as cost competitive to buy the, the better alternative. Are we seeing similar trends already in with other meat products such as burgers and chicken and that kind of thing? Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, yes. Uh, consumption of plant-based meats is certainly going up. That's why Tyson Foods is investing in it. It still, though, is less than 1% of the total meat market in the country. So it's no- nothing like what plant-based milks are. are. Uh, at the same time, meat consumption started falling in our country. I mean, we for so long were the number one consumers of meat on a per, on a per capita basis. But uh, from around 2008 through 2015 or so, meat consumption was falling. In fact, it declined by about 10% per person. 
it started going back up again, largely because the meat industry has been overproducing and therefore prices are low. And so people are buying more because prices are lower. But uh, I, I feel a level of confidence in the ability for these new technologies to disrupt the meat industry in such a way that those trends will be reversed. Mm. Do, do you think that price is a bigger challenge to overcome than the taste of the product? Yeah, I mean, the products taste excellent now. I mean, look, when I became a, a vegan, which was 23 years ago, I mean, it was not a good scene. I mean, God, I mean, first of all, people didn't know what the word meant. They didn't know how to pr- they didn't know how to pronounce it. They call you a vegan. I mean, if anything, they thought you were from Las Vegas. It didn't. I mean, people didn't know anything. And the general cultural ignorance about it was about as as good as the actual products themselves, which are pretty poor. So the dark ages of of Paul's eating. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it snowed all the time. It was uphill both ways. Yeah. It was terrible. Yeah. So, all right, but. Uh, now, I mean, these products are phenomenal. I mean, they are so good. It's it's truly remarkable. Many of them are indistinguishable from uh, regular conventional animal products. But on price, most of these products are not yet cost competitive. They're getting better, but they still have some ways to go. I'm curious how you go about deciding where to spend money and to strategize around these various issues. I mean, what is what does a meeting look like for you guys when you decide what your next campaign will be? Sure. So uh, I like to look at three things. The first is how many animals will be positively affected by our campaign. I look at not just the number of the animals, but the intensity and duration of their suffering. So even if you might affect a lot of animals, but only do a little bit of good, it may not be as compelling. You want to do a lot of good for as many animals as you can. And then third, I would look at how likely are we to actually win? Like how entrenched is whatever practice that we're going to campaign against? How entrenched is it? How much how much chance do we have of actually making a difference there? So again, the numbers times the intensity of the suffering and the tractability of the problem. Those are really the main criteria that I would think about when thinking about waging a campaign to help animals. You've got an algorithm. Over yeah. <laughs> and when you say numbers, I mean, we're basically every farm animal is a one. <laughs> yeah, I, I would think so. So um, I'm, I'm not counting a pig as more than a turkey, for example, in this case. What are the next big projects you guys are working on? Uh, Well, we're in a a cultural shifting point right now. People are starting to recognize that the animals on this planet are here not just for us, but rather are here with us. And so just in the same way that, for example, Copernicus and Galileo helped us to understand that we are not the centers of the physical universe— we are starting to recognize that maybe we're not the center of the moral universe either. Maybe the other animals with whom we share this planet also matter. They have individuals. They're individuals. They have personalities. They have likes and dislikes. And most importantly, they want to avoid suffering. And so what we're trying to do is to create a more humane society, a society in which our relationship with other animals is no longer based just on violence and domination, but rather is based on compassion and respect. And so when you ask what's next, what we're trying to do is to foment a shift in our society toward that type of a more humane future so we have a more peaceful relationship with the, our fellow creatures on this planet. 
Paul, it's difficult to reconcile a passionate statement like that with the, you know, we're all doing what we can that we were talking about earlier. I mean, because, because you know, the, the subtext is, and, and, and again, I'm not totally, I'm not necessarily disagreeing. I think that, uh, you know, we all wonder how we'll be judged uh, by, by, by future generations. And I think that you make a, a compelling case that, that um, the violence and lack of humanity for our current uh, system is, um, is is appalling and is morally appalling. Um, but, you know, for, for those of us who are just trying to do a little bit better, it feels like the tent just got smaller again. Uh, yeah, I, I would respectfully agree to disagree on that, Mike. Most people, as far as animal issues are concerned, are sleepwalking through their lives. They're not thinking about how their actions impact animals, how much suffering they're causing to them. But many people are starting to make better choices. And even if Americans just were to all do a meatless Monday, for example, something as minor as that, something as modest as just one day a week, choosing to enjoy plants, taking a weekly vacation from meat, that would spare more than a billion animals from factory farms and slaughter plants. I mean, more than a billion animals be the greatest animal welfare gain ever in world history. And that is something that's worth fighting for. I'm a big believer that small steps add up. As a, a long-distance runner myself, I know that literally <laughs> to be true. Um, but that is something that uh, each of us should be thinking about and taking those steps. We don't want to get paralyzed by the enormity of the problem before us. Rather, we want to start taking those first steps. And progress will beget progress. You know, most people would, you would consider somebody, let's say, a Christian, even if they don't follow all the rules of Christianity, you would say, well, you have the, the real key rules, so right, the Ten Commandments. Say, okay, well, what are the Ten Commandments? Well, one of them is that you have to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Most people who you know who self-identify as Christians probably don't do that at all. They probably don't do anything for the Sabbath. But you would still consider them Christians. Well, when did vegetarian eating become so orthodox that it was stricter than a religion? Like, it's not all or nothing. One of the problems is that we think of these in black and white terms. Like, you're either all in or you're no in. Whereas, we can have shades of gray. As I said earlier, for me, being a vegan is an aspirational statement. It's aspiring to try to make the world better, to try to reduce cruelty, to try to protect the environment. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be in, in some puritanical orthodoxy. It's not like that at all. Quite the opposite. Uh, Paul Shapiro, this has been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, thank you for thank making you. the time and uh, best of luck with your work. Yeah, thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Benji. I appreciate both of you. Thank you so much. That was Benji Jones and me talking with Paul Shapiro. Once again, Paul is the Vice President of Policy for the Humane Society. By the way, I'm eating a little less meat now. Our show is produced by Leslie Chang, Miles Trayer, Jackson Roach, and me, Mike Osborne. Thanks also to Tom Hayden and Isha Salia. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. You can learn more about the podcast online at www.genanthro.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. 
This season, we are releasing episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. If you like what we do, right now the best way you can support us is to please leave a review or rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday.